Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 118. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 118 you're listening to. I've got a great guest for you again today. I have Mr. Tyler Crowder. When I originally met him, he was assisting Howard Johnston, who's the chief engineer for George Winston. George Winston, of course, of Wyndham Hill type fame. And uh, I was renting studio time to George Winston and, uh, of course, met Howard and Tyler along the way. And Howard and Tyler and I have all stayed in touch with each other since then. So Tyler stopped over to my house for a good conversation. He's a freelance engineer in the Bay Area who uh, deals in all kinds of stuff, uh, clients on major labels, uh, you know, including Sony RCA, Def Jam, and of course, Dancing Cat, George Winston's label. And he's worked with a lot of a lot of different folks, in, uh, including Kanye West, Justin Bieber, Jennifer Hudson, Snoop Dogg, George Winston, of course, Melvin Seals, Tuck and Patty, Ziggy Marley, and, and Los Lonely Boys. So he's worked with quite a lot of people. He also has a hand in uh, audio media transfers and audio restoration and forensics. So uh, yeah, Tyler Crowder coming up. And unfortunately, a little bit of bad news as I uh, record this that all of you have already heard, and that is the death of the great Chuck Berry, uh, 90 years old, was born October 18th in 1926. Maybelline, Roll Over Beethoven, rock and roll music, Johnny B. Good. If you like rock and roll, uh, you could thank Chuck Berry. Yeah, we owe him at least that uh, respect uh, if you're a, a rock and roll fan. And not only did we lose Chuck Berry, uh, we also recently lost Tommy LaPuma, who's a record producer. And if you don't know who Tommy is, you should Google him. But uh, Tommy's worked with uh, George Benson, Diana Krall, Natalie Cole, Paul McCartney, Barbara Streisand, Miles Davis. I mean, you know, huge list of people he's worked with. He's had a long career. Uh, he was 80. I haven't always known who Tommy LaPuma was, but I actually uh, knew of him through Al Schmidt and uh, Steve Chenoweth. Uh, and that's also who, uh, it was through Steve, actually, that I heard that uh, that Tommy had died through his Facebook feed. So, yeah, we lost some, uh, we lost some good people. And, you know... I get it. People are going to die. It happens. We all die. None of us gets out of, out of here alive, right? But I think what it does is when folks like this on this level who have done great work, regardless, it doesn't matter if you're like a total metalhead and you don't listen to Dr. John or uh, Barbara Streisand or, or Miles Davis, whatever. That That doesn't really matter. I think what matters is, you know, whether you identify with uh, what these people have done in terms of music, when people like this die who have a big body of work, it gets me, and I I think it gets many of you too, to just kind of reflect on our own careers and think, well, these guys had got so much done and so much brought so much you know great stuff into the world that appealed to a lot of people. Uh, so it makes me kind of think to myself, well, what am I doing? I need to get, you know, working it. You know, you can't just sit around and wait for the phone to ring. You got to make things happen. You got to go and be proactive. And, you know, if you're talking to somebody and they say, yeah, you know, we're going in to record this weekend. And, you know, obviously they've already made the decision who's going to track the record. But, you know, maybe they haven't made the decision on who's going to mix it uh, or who's going to master it. So that's the time to speak up and just say, hey, not to invite myself into a situation, but 
could I have a shot at mixing this or mastering this or whatever? You got to be proactive because that's how you build up these resumes and discographies so that uh, when you do die, and you will, you know, you can feel good in the work that you've done and the people you've worked with and hopefully leave behind something that uh, wasn't there before in the case of these records, you know, creating something out of nothing with somebody else. So there it is. Chuck Berry and Tommy LaPuma. So we raise a coffee cup to both of them. So we're going to add a new section here to the monologue part of the Working Class Audio podcast where we actually uh, get on the phone, whether Skype or whatever, and we uh, we'll call uh, former WCA alums and uh, see what they're doing, see what they're up to. What are they working on? Uh, what's new? And ask them any questions that, uh, you know, of current events uh, in music or recording that uh, they might be thinking about. So uh, we're going to call up Matt Ross Spang, who was on uh, WCA number 97 uh, a little while back, and uh see what he's up to. So uh, he's out at dinner. I just texted him and he's going to step away from the table. Yes, I'm actually interrupting dinner and he's going to take my call. So let's have a chat here with Mr. Matt Ross Spang. Bubba. Matt Ross Spang. Bubba. (laughs) (laughs) How you doing? Good, man. How about you? I'm good. So you're out to a dinner right now. Yeah, but it was with Jeff Powell and uh, just the local label. Oh, tell Jeff hello. He told me to tell you hello. Well, I just wanted to check in with you and uh, find out uh, what's new. What are you working on lately? Oh man, it's been uh, it's been a blast. I just wrapped up um, uh, Jason Isbell's new record with Dave Cobb, and then uh, we also I wrapped up. Um, I did uh, Margot Price, me and her, and her great band, and Alex Munez and. Jeremy Ivy, her husband, we wrapped up her project, uh, or we're wrapping it up now. So we did it down in Memphis. And then I've got, um, oh, hell, Lucero coming up and this great artist, Nikki Bloom. And it's going good, man. Wow. How about you? I want to know about you. No, I don't want to know about me. I want to know about you. (laughs) No, man, this is is all about you. This this has nothing to do with me. I I wanted to hear what you're doing. Oh, just nerd stuff. Yeah, and what uh, what studios you've been working out of? I just did. Uh, I've been mostly at Sam Phillips. We did. It, Jason's obviously at uh, RCA because Dave, you know, works out of there now. And um, I did a really fun project with Paul Thorne, uh, with uh, this great producer Colin Linden, and we did half at Sam Phillips, and then we went to Fame, and um, so I got to go down to Fame and kind of revive that old Memphis Muscle Shoals connection. And that was that was pretty hip. Wow. Well, it sounds like you're doing great work. A couple thoughts on the passing of Chuck Berry. You know, obviously it's a huge loss for for us. I, someone said it best that you know when someone like Chuck dies, it's like a library burning down. You know, just all that knowledge and all that all the lessons and stuff is gone. But you know, Chuck was 90. He sure accomplished a lot in his life. I wish we could have. Uh, I wish the world could have appreciated him more. Maybe later in life. You know, he had. Um, certainly a hard go for a long time but he inspired i think just about everybody down the line whether with guitar playing or with, with his lyrics or or the whole package so it, it's a huge loss but it, you know hell if we could do a tenth of what chuck berry did in his life we'd all be happy so in 90s nothing to be sad about so i think it's just a, I, I think nothing but positive you know he, he lived one heck of a life Well, man, I I don't want to keep you long, but uh, for the listeners, if you haven't heard my interview with Matt Ross Spang, you can go to Working Class Audio number 97 to take a listen. And uh, Matt, thanks again. Thanks for taking my call. And uh, 
I know you're at dinner. Do the opposite of whatever I say. <laughs> that's, that's a good rule of thumb. <laughs> well, hey, my friend, you take care and uh, great to talk to you. Great to hear from you. And uh, tell Jeff hello. We got to see each other soon, man. Well, we got to hang I'm out. I'm coming to Nashville for Summer Nam. And that's July? That's June. No, July. That's around the 13th, I think. Well, I'll make sure I'll be there. Well, then I will make sure and hang out with you. Awesome, buddy. Okay. Well, you take care, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Good to see you from you. All right. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, good to talk to Matt. Yeah, like I say, if you haven't heard his interview, uh, he is on Working Class Audio number 97. And uh, our friend Jeff Powell, who he's out to dinner with, uh, he's on Working Class Audio number 15, way, way back. So uh, make sure you check that out. Have a, have a listen to Jeff Powell and Matt Ross Spang's interviews. So uh, that's it. That's the new section we're going to be doing. We'll do it, uh, of course, each week. We'll uh, we'll call up former WCA alums and see what they're working on and see what they're doing. So that's it. So uh, let's have a chat with Tyler Crowder here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Yeah, it's nice to be here. We know each other. When I had Broken Radio, the former Coast building in San Francisco, I met you originally because one of my main clients at the time was George Winston. But I met you and Howard Johnston, and you and I kind of kept in touch even after the studio closed. And I have always associated you with Howard and George and Dancing Cat, which is George's label. Let's go into a bit of your backstory. Like, what was the pivotal moment getting you, getting into recording for you? It goes back to my dad, probably, because when I was a kid, because my dad was a guitar player, kind of a singer-songwriter, and um, I grew up with lots of records and CDs around the house. My parents always played music. We didn't watch very much TV. I mean, in the evenings and sports, but in general, like, the weekends was the radio, it was music. My dad had a huge CD and vinyl collection. So I grew up with all kinds of stuff, from George's music to the Beatles. My dad was a huge CSNY fan, you know, all the classic rock stuff, Jethro Tull. So I think early in my life, I was exposed to a lot of different styles of music, which just kind of gave me a, a natural love of music. Um, I never played guitar until I was maybe like 13 or 14, even though my dad played my whole life. So I always had this love of music. And then uh, I think probably when I was in college, I had some friends that had were in bands, and I was kind of getting into more of like the jam band, Grateful Dead scene, and going to a lot of shows and things like that. And I found that there's a whole, this whole taper community there, and people would go to the shows and archive these shows. And I just fell in love with the idea of capturing this moment in time that'll never happen again, because that's what live music was. It's like this specific moment that's meant for that specific audience at that specific time. So I kind of fell in love with the idea of capturing that and being able to listen to it at a later date. So I kind of got into bootlegging, and that really was kind of the start of my love of audio. And then I trying to figure out what I want to do in my life, and I thought, man, if I could do this for a living, that would be the bee's knees. So that's kind of how it started my path. How did you find yourself in the position of working with somebody like Howard and George? After kind of doing audio and recording some friends' bands and things like that, I kind of decided, like, if I really want to be serious about this, I need to become, I need to learn more. And so that's when uh, I rolled in Expressions College over in Emeryville, which, for better or worse, I've met some great people and I have some, could say, good things and bad things. But um, at the end of the day, I ended up meeting Howard uh, out of it. And so... That was my kind of first gig. I was working for Dancing Cat. I was transferring DAT tapes. I was making, I think, 10 bucks an hour or 7 bucks an hour or something like that at the time. But it was paid. I mean, I got out of school. I was working in audio. I had a full-time job. So that's kind of originally how I met Howard, was just archiving this material, not being an assistant, but just 
I just got hired as a you know short-term gig, couple a year gig or a year and a half gig to record this whole back catalog of two inch and half inch and that's that Dancing Cat had acquired. So that's kind of how I met Howard and got involved in the the kind of San Francisco scene. Just day after day that you were just sitting like doing transfers yeah, into literally it. just transferring two channels of DATS into Pro Tools. It was good because it gave me a good understanding of the company of Dancing Cat. And originally it was just a paid for higher gig. So I just got hired. I was going to transfer these DATS. That was going to be the end of the gig. Dancing Cat didn't really have any assistance. At the time we were working at a SF Soundworks in San Francisco. When George would come to town or we'd be in mixing sessions with Dancing Cat, or if Howard's had some other clients, he would allow me to come downstairs and I could sit in on the sessions. Sometimes George would come to town for, you know, 14, 15, 16, 20 days, and I would sit downstairs for 20 days unpaid and just sit in the back of the control room like a fly and just watch and learn and, you know, try to be helpful. But, you know, and that's what's kind of the gig. And like when George wasn't around, I worked upstairs, I got paid. Um, I was living at home, thankfully, so I was able to you know, work for long periods of time without getting paid out of school. So that's kind of how that side of it started. And then when uh, SF Soundworks had, uh, there was a big water leak happened, we ended up leaving the building. Uh, we had a space upstairs and it got flooded. And that's eventually when we came over to Broken Radio. And at that time, Howard no longer had an assistant. And so, because we were always using the studio assistants. And so that's when I kind of got my chance to step up. And that was probably maybe a little over a year or right around a year after I started working for Dancing Cat. And that kind of blossomed into, I've been working for Dancing Cat for, I don't know, 11 or 12 years now or something like that. So um, that was kind of the start of a a really long relationship. I can't say this for a fact, but my perception of Howard as the chief engineer is that he's a very demanding, very, very particular type of engineer. A lot of time spent miking up George Winston's piano, finding the right the right combo of mics. And what did you learn from Howard in this time? Howard is an amazing person. He's a great engineer, and he is one of the most demanding people I've ever worked for in my life. You know, he used to own Different Fur and uh, Justin Lieberman and, you know, coming from Trilogy and Adam Munoz from Fantasy. Those guys came up underneath him, and Howard was demanding. I mean, he was tough. He was not, I mean, he was there to make good engineers. And if you couldn't cut it, he could show you where the door was, you know? But he is an awesomely nice person, and he demanded the best because he wanted the best, you know? So in that aspect, it was really difficult in the beginning because after every session, there'd be talks, and, you know, it'd be like, here's what you did right, here's what you did wrong, you talked too much during the sessions, you didn't talk enough during the sessions, you need to insert yourself more, whatever it was. At first, those were kind of tough, but I realized they all came out of love. And I realized that the day he stopped having those conversations with me are probably the days my days were probably numbered at Dancing Cat, right? So he was doing it because he, he believed in me. He wanted me to become better. And he's an amazing engineer. I mean, he's he did all a lot of the Wyndham Hill stuff back in the day and all the Alex DeGrassi and George's stuff and Kronos Quartet and um, Modern and Mandolin. Yeah, Tuck and Patty, Modern Mandolin Project. Like, you know, he's like really a master of acoustic instruments, recording spaces, you know, um, not only just recording, but also mixing spaces, creating reverbs, creating these realistic environments for instruments to live in. So I'd say that's probably the biggest thing I took out of it, being able to record acoustic guitars and pianos, kind of like not many people can. He always has struck me as a very, um, very serious about what he does. I think he comes from a world of professional audio, you know, it's like back in the day when studios were studios, you know, when the Automat was around and Fantasy and the Plant and, you know, these were world-class, real-world, old-school studios, you know, not many of those exist anymore. You know, they come from the day when you walk in a control room 
all that matters is your client. Your client is always number one. You know, it's like the room never has any semblance of someone else being there. You know, it's a clean slate every time a new client walks in the room. It's their room. They're paying for the time. I think some of those old kind of style ideas of recording is kind of what helps me retain a lot of clients, you know, because for me, every one of my clients is my number one client, whether they're my highest paying client, my lowest paying client, the most work I get from a client or the least work I get from a client, they're all treated equally. Let's talk about that because you seem to be working quite a bit. We're friends on Facebook. You post not great details about what you're doing. You seem to have a great, not that people who post in, in sessions are disrespectful of their clients, but you kind of have a little more, you know, you're not so verbose about what you're doing. I just know that, oh, Tyler's working again. Oh, he's over at this studio. Oh, he's over at this studio. And it always strikes me like, wow, he's working a lot. That's great. Yeah, I try to. So working with those guys, with with Howard and George, when did you start to make that transition of bringing in your own clients? I think like early on, because I was working with some friends' bands and stuff, but not quite as professionally. And I think a lot of it's just word of mouth. I mean, again, it's, you know, I, I owe so much of my career to Howard because Howard been in the recording studio for industry in the Bay Area for so long. It's where I met a lot of people. And through association, it was like, oh, here's this guy, Tyler. He works for me. It was like instantly I had some respect in the community because I was associated with Howard and Howard was well-respected. Because of that, I got just word of mouth gigs or, hey, I got a client. I can't do it. Or I'm booked on another session. Are you interested? Or, hey, I got your, you know, a client at email me and say, hey, I got your email from so-and-so. It's really word of mouth. And more so than even, I have a lot of friends that are in bands, but all of them can't afford, you know, recording time in studios. So most of my clients are you know, from word of mouth and referrals, honestly. But you're also working at some nice, expensive places. Fantasy and Studio Trilogy uh, are not cheap. You obviously have a relationship with with the studio owners. Which helps a lot because that helps me give better rates to my clients and allows me to work there. And if I bring in, you know, work to the studio, it's a win-win for everybody. They get work and I get work and the clients get a better experience. And so it's, you know... Um, and then those clients tell their friends, hey, I was over at such and such studio or it's a trilogy or fantasy or 25th Street or whatever. And uh, I had a great experience. You should go there, you know. And so it's it, it win, it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, it's, I think it's, and I'm sure you would agree, it's as an engineer, no matter what town you're in, if there's a studio in town, one or 10 or 20, it is beneficial for everyone if you have a good, solid relationship with that studio if you intend to work out of there. Totally. And that's, I really try to do that is have good relationships with a couple places, you know, and that way I can bring clients there. I, I know the rooms, maybe I need less from the studio, maybe I don't need assistance. And so enable that's less cost for the studio, which gives me a better rate. And then it enables me to work out of, you know, high-end studios with, you know, great gear, good microphones, good monitoring, which in turn gives me a better product at the end, you know, as an engineer, it makes me look better because my end product is sounds better. And so it's it's good for the client, it's good for the studio, it's good for my own business, it makes my clients happy, you know. Um, so I try to keep my work to the nicest studio I can. And that's, you know, I, there's a lot of studios in the Bay, you know, and, um, you know, some affordable ones. And, you know, there's gives and takes of all of them, even the nice studios, there's pros and cons of them, you know, but... So are you entirely making your living as as an engineer or do you diversify at all? No, I'm pretty much entirely funded by audio. Between Dancing Cat, who I still do work with, which is great because it's pretty consistent work. And uh, luckily, it gives me the flexibility to work on other projects and to have other clients. And if I have a week or 10 days or something where, you know, I have some 
another gig going on or something, you know, uh, Dancing Cat and Howard are very understanding of that. So it enables me that flexibility to have my own kind of freelance career, but then also kind of have some stability with the record label doing odds and ends and, you know, whatever kind of help the record label needs. So in that regard, I pretty much do all of my income comes from pro audio. I have done a little bit of uh, like studio design and consultation. I'm no, by no means a studio designer, but um, I have helped build a couple project studios and I have a client um, who's a really good client of mine who I helped build a studio for them and you know, I make help them make gear purchases and decisions and uh, things like that. So um, hmm. a little bit of like studio wiring, patch-based stuff. But in general, it's almost all comes from actual audio. That's great. And I know that you're not married, but you've been with the the same same woman for 16 years yeah, 15, or so. 16 years. How do you all manage to keep your relationship solid in spite of the the challenges that audio can present it's pretty tough i mean it's it definitely takes effort and you have to want to be together you know i mean that's i don't really know what else to say when originally when i met her uh, i wasn't in audio and so she kind of knew me before i was in audio and then she knew me when i was going through school and then you know working late nights and uh, long days and you know working 30 days in a row and 16 hour days and you know and there's been some pretty shaky times in the end, it's, you know, luckily she stands by me and I can't, you know, thank her enough for that, honestly. So if you're listening, thank you and I love you. <laughs> um, and, as I, and as I get farther in my career, I'm starting to put more boundaries right. on what I'm willing to do. Early on, I had to uh, accept more and work longer hours and work more nights and longer days and not have days off because it's what I needed to do if I wanted to succeed. And now that I'm kind of getting more work, some different clientele and stuff, it's just like, look, I don't want to work till eight in the morning. I'm not doing it anymore. You know, like I'll work six days. I want a seventh day off. You know, it's like, and I think it's good for everyone. If you work too many days in a row, your brain just kind of, for me at least, my brain just kind of shuts down. You know, it's like I need a day of just solitude, you know, and then go and tack it another six days. So I'm starting to put a little more boundaries on my personal life. Mm -hmm. um, that enables, you know, better relationships and I don't miss family functions. And I used to work a lot of holidays, you know, I don't do that anymore. So yeah, um, that's so it, I really have kind of started to figure out this work-life balance, you know. And I know that George and Howard work long hours, like late hours too. Yeah, long and late. Because I rented the studio to them yeah. when I had it. And, and we consistently worked till 2, 3 in the morning. You know, and early on in the Soundworks days, we'd work, you know, from, you know, 10 or 11 in the morning till 3, 4, 5 in the morning, you know. So, yeah, there were really long days. Uh, as time goes on, those hours seemed a little bit shorter with Howard and George. Yep. Um, but still, it's always nights. I mean, we never start before 7 or 8, and, you know, we're never out of there before probably at least midnight, but, you know, probably more like one or two. That's always a challenge, too, if you do work those late hours and then, you know, the sun comes up and you have maybe girlfriend, wife, husband, whatever your relationships are in your, in your life, those people want to see you, if possible. And so this concept of I'll just switch my schedule around and I'll sleep during the day and work at night, that doesn't always work out. No, not at all. Because the sun shines in, into your bedroom and inevitably you're going to get a, a, a hint of that and your internal clock will go, wait a second, I'm supposed to be up. Yeah, I think that it's pretty tough. I think on the body sometimes too, you know, 
because it's at least for me working a lot of nights. I mean, I'm kind of I've always been kind of a night person. Even my mom even said when I was a baby, it's like I used to be up a lot at night. You know, that was kind of my thing, and uh, I've always kind of enjoyed being up in the nights. But I also like the mornings, and so that's a problem. <laughs> right? So when I'm working a lot of nights, I tend not to get a lot of sleep. And then that's why I was saying that, like, if I'm working 20 or 30 days in a row, it's good to have every seventh or eighth day to have a day off because it enables me to catch up on some sleep and, you know, kind of refresh my body and stay healthy, you know? So the yeah. important things in life. Health is not something that recording professionals are really known for. No, 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 definitely not. No sun, not a lot of sleep. You don't eat much food, long hours. And the food you do eat is not always the best. No, definitely not. You know, working from home and dropping my kids off in the morning, you know, sometimes to stop at the gas station, you know, before I come home to do my audio work. And along the way, I see some of the parents, you know, of the other kids. I see them in throughout the, the, the town I live in jogging. And I'm always like, God, I hate running. That's <laughs> uh, never going to be me. I'm not no. going to be out there. My wife comes home after work, and one of the things I do enjoy is she'll say, hey, well, hey, you know, I've been sitting behind a desk all day. I'm going to go for a long walk, so you want to join me? And if I can, I will try to do that as much as possible because it gives me that, that social opportunity with her where we can both decompress and talk about our day, and we get that exercise in, but... I'll be damned if I'm going to be out there running. Yeah, that's probably not so much me either. Um, <laughs> I do enjoy riding my bike occasionally. I've been trying to do it more because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, last weekend I think I saw the sun once or maybe twice, and that was in the morning from my house to the studio. So I have been trying to make a better effort just to get outside and be a little more active because being in the studio, it's like you don't see the sun. You're sitting behind a desk all day. You know, it's, it's not the healthiest of lifestyles. So Many freelance engineers could make the time to go and work out or walk or ride a bike or get exercise. Why do you think that, I mean, I'm assuming, I'm going going on the assumption that everybody else has the same inclinations I do. It's like, oh, I got to get home and get working on, on such, and such, such yeah. and such project. When realistically, I could easily carve out 30 minutes to an hour yeah, somewhere in the day. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's got 30 minutes somewhere. Do you feel compelled to get to the project rather than go and oh, yeah. do the exercise. I would, yeah, yeah. I would totally rather comp a vocal or mix a song than go run. You know, that's, you know. <laughs> I know, me too. You know, it's like. <laughs> it's terrible. It's, it's why I love audio, you know. It's like um, make your passion your profession, you know, and that's, you know, kind of what I've done. And so running is not my passion and exercising is not my passion. You know, for some people, they love fitness. That's not me, you know, so I have to make an effort to do that. But I'd rather make an effort to go ride my bike or get outside than make an effort to have to wake up every day and go to work. Yeah, and when I do walk, if I'm by myself, I always want to bring a pair of headphones with me and listen to something. I just that urge to hear, to listen, is always with me. So I never totally. can sit silent. Silently. and Or, or walk silently because... Yeah, music's that, motivating too. So. It is, definitely is. Tyler Crowder here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's take a uh, sponsor break here for a sec with our friends over at Audio-Technica. And I mentioned this before, but I uh, want to remind you about the ATH-E40s. These are professional in-ear monitor headphones. $99 list. I'm sure you can find them for less if you do a little shopping around. But what they are, and I've got them right here, they're 
nice in-ear headphones. I take these headphones with me everywhere. And on an airplane, you might say, well, you know, I got some, that brand of uh, headphones that uh, is noise canceling. If you'd rather not spend that kind of money and you want some isolation and you want some good sound, the ATH-E40s, I mean, at that price are really great. And they come with a little case. They also come with a quarter inch adapter in case you're gonna use them for professional type purposes. If you are gonna get noise canceling headphones, Audio-Technica does have that. They have a wide range of those. They have uh, four different pair, you know, ranging in price from $200 all the way down to $120. So check it out. Go to audio-technica.com. And you can see all that they have to offer in the world of headphones. So let's get back to our guest here, Mr. Tyler Crowder, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's talk about business and money. What is your approach to all of the world of audio and money and trying to make it and try to eke out a living. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. First of all, I hate talking about money with clients. It's my least favorite part of being self-employed, of being a business, of working for a label. I hate talking about money. And everybody needs to make money, but it's it's my least favorite subject to bring up. It's because I got into music because I love music. I wanted to capture moments in time for people to listen to, you know, not for today, but for tomorrow. And um, money was never a driving force in that, obviously, here we are on working class audio. But, um, you know, it was, it was never money driven. And so sometimes talking about money is a little awkward, you know, and it's, it's hard to put a value on someone's creativity or your time. And so... Um, you don't want to off-put a client, but you also want to make sure you get paid and we all have to live. And, you know, you and I both live in the Bay Area, which is crazy, Pricey. crazy expensive. So, you know, we, everyone needs to make money. So I try to approach it in a way that it makes everyone comfortable with whatever that rate is. I don't charge the world, you know. I probably undercharge some of my clients, you know. But my theory is I'd rather have repeat clients. If I can afford to live, if I can put a roof over my head, if I can drive a reliable car, if I can go on vacation every once in a while, if I could put a little bit of money in savings and I can live in the Bay Area, I'm doing okay. And I'm working in music, you know, in audio, you know. So that's kind of how I try to approach. I have a sliding scale, you know. I kind of uh -huh. have a top end of my scale, which some of my clients pay um, that can afford it. And then I kind of have a, a low end of my scale that, uh, you know, a lot of my, more of my clients pay. Yeah, I guess if you, if your tastes or your lifestyle is expensive if you want to draw, you know, if you want to drive a Mercedes. It's probably not the profession for you. Probably not the right profession for you. Yeah. But if you're good with, you know, a Honda or whatever, yeah. then yeah, you might yeah, be okay. I like waking up every day and, you know, working on music for the most part. You know, I mean, you occasionally have some clients that are, you know, challenging, mm -hmm. you know, but... um but I either, I try to only take projects where I like the people or I like the music. If I don't like either, then I question, what am I doing this for? And I really try to avoid projects like that, where if I don't like the music or the people, it's not something I want to be a part of, you know? And luckily, I've been able to kind of balance that a little bit, you know? And I haven't had to take too many projects just for the money. Kind of why I've stayed out of being like staff engineers at studios too, because I don't want to be forced to do work that I don't want to do. You know, just to take something in because I call it and want to book time in a studio. I want to continue loving what I do, you know, and I want to be auto-tuning vocals for eight hours straight. You know, <laughs> occasionally it happens, but that's, that's not what I want to do every day. You know, I don't want to be a VO engineer. I don't want to do ADR. Like, I want to work with music and I want to work with somewhat talented people or extremely talented people. So in that regard, sometimes I have to keep my rates lower 
to retain some of those clients, you know. Um, sometimes I go and seek out artists that I want to work with. And even if they can't afford me, I don't do it, you know, I do it for very little money. But, and I've also, over time, I've learned that I can't devalue myself either. You know, I've been doing this for, I don't know how many years now, but 15 years. And so there's a certain worth that comes with that experience. So there, there has to be a bottom line where it's like, okay, I won't work for under this amount of money because I'm worth it. You know, it's not a cocky thing. It's just, A, I live in an expensive area and, you know, my time is somewhat valuable, you know. I mean, I'm not booked every day of the week, but it's getting more and more in that direction. So, What is your personal approach to talking money with clients? I mean, you have to have the conversation. You do have the conversation, otherwise you're not getting paid. So yeah, totally. is there something in the way you talk about it with them that... You know, I try to feel out a client and maybe, you know, if I if I tell them like, hey, I want to work at this studio and here's the rate at this studio. You know, this is what I would recommend. This is where I want to work, you know, for this project. It doesn't have to be the most expensive studio, but whatever works for the studio. Yeah, so I talked to them about the studio rates. And then if they kind of balk at it and were like, oh, wow, I didn't realize recording was going to be that expensive. And I haven't even given them an engineering rate. Then maybe we need to, you know, A, if I really want to do the project, then maybe I'll give them a lower engineering rate right off the bat because I've already sussed out that they're maybe a little uncomfortable with how much per hour it's going to cost to make a record and how many hours it's going to entail to make that record. Do you charge by the hour? Typically, I do. It depends on what it is. Lately, I've been doing day rates for stuff, but really, it breaks down like over 10 hours. So whatever it is, I mean, that's kind of... Clients like the day rate idea because they feel like, you know, if I work 12 hours, you know, maybe I'm getting a little you know, I'm taking a little less, or if I work 13 or 14 hours, I'm taking a little less. But if I work eight hours, then I'm making a little bit more per hour. So it just, it all kind of, you know, works out in the end. Do you think it's uh, difficult for a client to have like, you know, okay, well, here's the studio rate and then here's my rate? Oh, I think it's super difficult because I think a a lot of times when you go to a studio, you know, as a freelance engineer, I get a certain rate at a studio. But if you go to a uh, if, a, if one of my clients were to go to a studio and book a rate, it wouldn't be the studio rate plus my rate. It would be cheaper than that, you know? And you deal and, with a house engineer. And you're dealing with a house engineer, which is fun. And a lot of times, you know, some of my, I have some really good friends that are house engineers that are awesome engineers, you know? Justin and Willie over at Studio Trilogy were house engineers. Like, I can never say anything bad about either of them. They're both amazing engineers, you know? Or Adam Munoz at Fantasy. Like, he's an awesome engineer. Like, I could never tell anyone, don't go work with that guy. So yeah, it's challenging sometimes. Um, I think what retains the ability to do that is that you have to have a relationship with your clients that makes them want to work with you, that makes them feel more creative when you're in the room, you know, where they they want you to be around, like you were a part of their music as much as they are. And it's not the same doing a record without you. I've had some clients that have used me as an engineer and then have gone someplace else and used a house engineer. And the next record, they come back. You know, and they say, hey, will you work on our next record? You know, we, we, missed, we missed working with you or our experience wasn't quite as good at this other place, you know. And that is, the, that is the key is client retention being a freelance engineer, you know. Yeah, that is a challenge because, I mean, you might have a good studio rate, but you add your rate on top of the studio rate. And it's hard to quantify to a client. They're probably asking, well, why would it? You know, if it's, maybe it's going to be, and I'm just hypothetical here, but maybe it's going to be $400 for their day with the house engineer, but maybe it's going to be 600 with you. Yeah. And to try to articulate an argument for the $200 more, expensive rate, more rate or whatever, you know, I mean, that's a challenge. Yeah. An artist, it's, you know, money is so finite this day and age that 
$200, you're doing five days of basics, that's another $1,000. Is the project going to be $1,000 better at the end of five days? You know, that's a tough one to swallow. I mean, that's a guitar for someone or an amp or, I mean, a band could put that in a lot of uses. They could put it towards their mastering budget or mixing. I mean, you know, so. And the only, I guess the only way I can relay my experiences is I had a band and they chose to go to a studio I use and use a house engineer. And it wasn't bad, but there's a level of detail in some of the tracking that as I brought it up to mix it, because I was hired to mix it ultimately, I was thinking to myself the whole time, gosh, if I had tracked this, I wouldn't be doing this thing right now to fix this problem. Or, oh gosh, this doesn't sound as as I wished it would sound. But that's the argument I'm having in my head. And of course, every engineer goes, you know, they say to themselves, well, if I had done it. If I had done it, I wouldn't be fixing this. Or I would have done this differently. <laughs> I would have screwed the light bulb in this way. Yeah. You know? It is it is, that is a very good, you know, thing to bring up, though, about being a freelance engineer working in studios. Because it does cost more money, you know. And it's, uh, I mean, that's part of why, you know, earlier I was talking about building relationships with studios. Because I try to get my rate. And how much effort the studio has to do for me to be there as little as possible. And um, that way I can get my rate as low as possible. And I'm at least taxing on the studio. And that means I can charge, a, you know, what I feel is a fair rate for the client. You know, that way, hopefully, the client doesn't end up really paying that much more to have a, you know, outside engineer work on their projects. However, there is, and this was brought up in a previous show, um, actually, Jules from Gear Sluts had uh, phoned in to talk about this with me at one point early on in the podcast where he talked about partnering up with a, a studio as a freelancer and presenting it as one bill to say, you know, here's the bill. And that bill encompasses both your rate and the studio rate. And whether it's the engineer taking the check and paying the studio or the studio taking the check and paying the engineer. That's, that's pretty smart. I mean, that's something I should, you know, maybe consider, you know, in the future with some of my clients is, sitting down with a couple of these studios and trying to figure out some way that allows freelance engineers to work there also. Um, that was the good thing about Studio Trilogy is that, um, you know, Cindy, the studio manager over there, and I had a good relationship. And so Trilogy really encouraged freelance engineers to work there because they realized that was a good business. Like, if you could get other engineers with clients to come into your studio and pay money, that's more sessions you're booking you know, whether a house engineer is working on it or not. And that frees a house engineer to do other things for the business or in other sessions or work on other projects where they're making more money. So they, you know, Cindy was really good about working with rates with me to make sure that whatever Trilogy may have charged for a session would equal what I could charge plus the studio rate. So, you know, they really encourage that outside freelance work, you know, environment. And kind of unlike any other studio I've kind of worked at, you know. The other side of that too, or another aspect of this is, for example, I was recently hired to, to mix these five songs and the client had told me, you know, I'm hiring you and this other person and maybe this other person to work on a range of songs for the record. They said, we're giving you all this type of song and this guy, this type of song. So it came out at some point that they had only hired two out of the original three of us. And I, I asked about that. I said, well, I thought you were going to hire so-and-so. And uh, the guy said, well, actually, we were, but that person didn't have their own space to mix in and needed to hire a studio. And when I saw the price, I just split it up between 
you know, you and this other guy as opposed to three of you. And I said, oh, that's interesting. That's, I guess that is fairly critical from the musician or the client standpoint. And he said, hell yes, it's, it's very vital because he said one of the main reasons, you know, beyond your, your own talent, he said to me, I brought it to you because you could give me a flat rate and you have a space that you can work out of and that fit my budget. Um, I think like with mixing stuff, I tend to do more pre-production in the box for mixing so I can spend less time in the studios working on the, the finishing mixes. Part of it's because my room is not the most accurate. I mean, I know it and it's good for getting ballpark ideas, but really for those final polish finishing touches, you know, it's nice to go into a studio that has good monitoring and something where I can put, you know, I don't have pull techs at home. You know, there's some gear that's like that uh, I like to use that I, you know, can't afford or don't have in my own space. And so, and just to use some, you know, analog gear and kind of stem some stuff out and, you know, still get some of that console, um, you know, flavor. vibe, flavor, you yeah. know. And so if, if possible and there's a budget for it, I'll do it. I do plenty of in-the-box mixes, mm-hmm. you know. I think in the box stuff is getting better and better and better, you know, especially Pro Tools 11 and 12 and, you know, bigger bet dip, bit depths and the mixing, you know, and the summing mixers and the architecture. The It's not so squashed. Back in the TDM days, you would do these big mixes in the box and they just sound like crap, you know, like I don't care if you Pro think Tools, they sounded good, but they didn't. Pro you Tools know? 7 era, yeah, for sure. You know, it's just all those stereo images would collapse, the depth would collapse. Now it retains a lot of that. You know, so I'm not as, I don't really have a big issue mixing in the box. I like the tactileness of a console. Mm-hmm. I really consider myself a hybrid engineer. I don't, not an in the box engineer. Um, I'm comfortable doing it now. It's taken me a long time to get there, but um, I really want the best of both worlds. You know, I'm, analog is there for a reason, digital is there for a reason. Use use them both equally. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of why I kind of start in the box. And and it's great when I'm doing overdubs and stuff for clients because then they're rough, you know, the bounces I give them at the end of the day or, uh, you know, sound decent. And then when we go mix it, it's less time mixing because a lot of the, you know, tweaky grunt work has kind of already been done. And it's just kind of like getting all the levels right and being in a good room and using a little bit of outboard gear and, you know, running it through a console and um, just kind of that final little, you know, polish on the mixes. So, which, you know, saves the client money in the long run. Because if I'm working in my own space, I can work for whatever my hourly rate is with no studio cost, right? Which is substantially cheaper than me working with my rate in a studio. Saves the client money and enables me to do more work on a project. Mm-hmm. Where if we were exclusively doing it in the studio, maybe some of that final tweaky editing, maybe some of that, you know, vocal timing stuff, you know, maybe a little bit extra drum editing might not have been possible because it wasn't in the budget. But being able to take some of this stuff home and, you know, work on it on my laptop even, you know, on headphones, even in the evening when I'm watching TV or something and, you know, comping some vocals or something, uh, you know, enable it, it ends up with a better product in the long run. Depends on the TV show you're watching. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> so as far as money, gear, that discussion, which we have on the show, what's your gear less level? Extreme, I would ah, say. Okay. The financials behind it, not so extreme. Uh, within the box stuff, I'm less concerned with buying time-based stuff, you know, like I'm very happy using UAD stuff and sound toy stuff and, you know, Echo Boy and filter. I think for delays and stuff like that, they're great. They're not saying a PCM42 doesn't have a sound, you know, but 
in general, I could easily live without some of that stuff. What I spend my money on is front-end stuff. So even though when I have the opportunity, I get to work out of nice studios that have good microphones and preamps and stuff like that, but I tend to buy microphones, things that I love, that I want to travel with, that maybe not every studio has, and uh, preamps that I love, you know, things that are kind of that I've fallen in love with from other places that I want to own, that I want to be able to bring with me no matter where I go. And I feel that even if I'm working out of a project studio, because even though I work out of nice studios, I also work out of, you know, people's basement studios that I help them build. And um, I want to be able to bring, I want to be able to capture the sounds the best I can. So I think that's where I try to spend my money. And I try to buy one or two nice pieces of gear or a microphone, you know, a microphone or preamp or something like that, you know, try to buy one or two pieces a year, you know, if I can afford it. Do you go into debt for your gear? No, absolutely not. Just financially for me, I don't like to be in debt. I took out a big school loan when I went to school. I paid it off. And after I paid that off, I said, no more. It was super stressful. I do have a car payment, but it's pretty minimal. But in general, I'm I live a very debt-free life. I figure if I don't have the money for it, I can't afford it. And so I live a very cash-based existence. Um, If I want a piece of gear, I save money. When I have the money, I buy the gear. And that's just kind of how I kind of live my life in general. Even if it's vacations or, you know, wherever I'm going or doing, it's if I don't have the money to do it in cash, I can't afford it. It really removes a huge amount of stress from the day-to-day. And, uh, you know, just the ability to buy something outright and yeah. not make payments on it. Yeah, not have to pay interest on it. Yeah. And, you know, it's just... And the thing is, I'm not running a studio. It's not like I'm running a place and I'm like, okay, well, I need a new headphone system because mine's dying and, you know, I'm going to take a loan and, you know, buy this headphone system or whatever it may be or I have to do repairs on my console. You know, if I was running a brick-and-mortar business, then, you know, taking a business loan is not a bad idea. But... um for my personal life and my personal use of gear and stuff, um, I just, I don't want the stress of having to make payments and thinking about the interest. And if I buy a $2,500 piece of gear and I pay it off over a year and my interest rate is X amount of dollars on a credit card, like now I'm really paying $3,000 for it or $3,200 for it, you know. It's, I could use that $500 or $700 for something else. Yeah, mics and mic preamps. That's that's kind of a, I think that's a, those are always smart purchases if you're yeah. going to buy something because you can always liquidate those. And if you buy quality gear, that's what I learned too. Early in my career, I would buy like kind of cheap stuff and then I was never happy with it. And then I'd buy kind of prosumer stuff and realized like I still wasn't happy with it and lost a ton of money, you know? And so now I realize that, you know, as I've gotten older and I'm working on a, on a much more higher kind of level of audio is that you buy good gear, it retains its value. You know, it does. And certain gear even gains value, you know, so. A lot of people get relief from, or they gain, they get satisfaction from what I would call, which is, uh, I certainly didn't coin the term, but uh, what's called retail therapy. They don't know what they want. They just spending money and going and going through the process of accumulating stuff. It's kind of an American, you know, very American kind of thing too, you know. It is. Some of us in the audio world it's we combine that retail therapy with our gear lust. Oh yeah, big time. And it's like a match right next to a can of gas. Oh, it's beautiful. You buy a new <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's a, that's like Christmas morning for an engineer. You get a new mic pre in the mail or a new microphone or whatever it is, you know, and it's like not only are you spending money, even in me there's like this little tick of mine, you know, it's like if I buy a guitar or I buy a good piece of gear, it's like, well, well it's an investment. 
you know? <laughs> I tell my girlfriend, like, no, you don't understand. She's like, you spent how much on what? And I'm like, yeah, but it's going to enable me to get a really good drum room sound. She goes, and that costs how much money, you know? And so it's, but I, it's an investment. I'll get my money back out of it, you know? And so it's, it's investing in my own career, you know? But it's also, um, if you buy good quality gear, if you ever do come to a place in your life where you have to liquidate it, you know, hopefully you get pretty much everything you paid for. And sometimes more depending yeah. on what you're buying. And I try to buy used gear too, because then it already takes that new car off the lot factor out of it. That's right. right. Um, microphones, I'm a little more hesitant on buying used unless I know where they came from. Yeah. Or I'd used them before just because microphones, I think, are a lot more sensitive to condition and abuse and how they've been stored and people use pop filters on them and, you know, things like that. Um, or not. Or not. Or how many drum kits have they been hit sticks with? Or, how many cigarettes have been smoked yeah, in you front know, of so a it's particular like, If you don't mic. know, it's like everything on eBay or Reverb says, smoke-free studio, smoke-free studio. I know for a fact I have never worked out of a studio that has been smoke-free because everyone smokes weed in studios. You know? <laughs> so maybe <laughs> they, not cigarettes anymore, but... But people are smoking pot. Yeah, you yeah. know, and so... Um, yeah, so microphones I tend to be a little bit more wary on. Uh, <laughs> that should be a checkbox if you're selling on a, on yeah, a site. Cigarettes, like, cigarettes, no cigarettes, pot. Yeah, exactly. And in some rare cases, for some clients, crack. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you didn't do audio, what do you think you'd be doing? That is a thought I've had a lot in my life. Um, there's been many moments in audio where I'm like, what am I doing? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, I, we all do it because we love it, but it, it's not really a viable career you know it's a challenge I mean, it's career. a challenge you know there's very few people who make it to a point where they do well you know not just client wise but financially you know it's, yeah. it's it's constantly a struggle being freelance is tough because you're constantly work looking for work you don't know when your next gig is going to come it's you know there's definitely like a high stress factor that goes into being a freelance engineer and your bills are due when they're due you know whether you have work or not and so that's the conversation i've had a lot of times of with a lot of other engineers in the barrier too. It's like, what you know, what will we do if we didn't do this? You know? And the question that I keep coming up with is, I don't know, you know, and a lot of people are the same way. It's like, this is one I know. It's what I've done my entire adult life. Like I have other passions, you know. You know, I love the mountains, I love camping, I love hiking, I like snowboarding, you know, I like traveling. But at the end of the day, it's like, I don't really know. I don't want to go be a barista. You know, I don't want to go be a manager at some store someplace or you know, it's, it have to, that's it, a really tough question. Would you be good with a job that was associated with an audio company? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think that would be, if it was in the field, you know, you know, if I was a coder and I worked for UA or, you know, I mean, whatever, like if it was in the, in the field of audio, I think that would be awesome. You know, um, if I, even if I wasn't engineering, but outside of engineering or working in an audio field, you know, I don't, I don't really know what I would do, you know, if I was forced to it. I'd, and the reason I did this, because I never wanted to do a job for money. And so it would be hard for me. I mean, in high school, I worked in jobs where I just did it because it was a retail job and, you know, I had to pay for gas. But um, but as an adult, it's, I've never wanted to take a gig just for money. I want to take a gig because I want to work with that client or I want to work with those people. Or So to, if I didn't do audio and I was just doing a job for the money, it kind of goes against my life philosophy doing something because I love it and I'm passionate about it, not because I have bills to pay, you know, and hopefully those two worlds can collide where my passion and, you know, finances can, you know, meet. And so far it's been okay. I mean, I'm still relatively young and I got a long line. Not collide, me, but, but gel. Gel. Yeah. yeah. Coalesce, I guess. Co you know? Yeah, there we go. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, 
I don't do this habitually, but I do buy, and I did it today. I went and I bought a couple lottery tickets for two different, you know, Powerball and mm -hmm. Super Lotto. When I go pick up the kids from school, I'll say, hey guys, so I got a couple of lotto tickets. We'll see if, you know, we'll yeah. see what happens. See what happens. And we've had the discussion before where they say, well, would you quit working? And I always say, well, I'd probably stop doing some things, but at the end of the day, I would continue making records if at all possible. I would continue doing audio. I would probably do it financially in a different way. I would structure it differently, but I don't think I'd quit doing audio. Yeah, I don't think I would either. I've had that conversation. Like, I don't buy a lot of lottery tickets, but every once in a while when it gets really big, I'll buy one. And for a few bucks, it's worth the dream of, you know, having a sizable bank account. And, uh, you know, I talked to my girlfriend a lot about this. I was like, what would we do, you know? She's like, I would she would quit her job, you know? But um, for me, I don't think I would quit. I think I'd be more selective in the projects I worked with. And I think I might seek out bands who maybe couldn't afford to record and just record them for free, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, depending on how much you, you know, how much you'd come into. But um, I love audio and I love recording and... This is the life I've chosen, you know, financially for better or for worse. And just because I came into $300 million or whatever, when it stop, I mean, you still have to do something every day. Like, I don't want to wake up and just sit there and, you know, watch the news for 12 hours. Like, I still want a life. I still want to contribute to society. So, Which directly kind of answers, like, the retirement question. You know, whether or not you're saving for retirement or not, You you've kind of just given me your answer. It's like... Retirement for a lot of people means, you know, taking long walks in the park and, you know, uh, yeah. for some it's traveling and I totally get that. But the concept of stopping doing audio for me. It doesn't really exist. It doesn't really. Yeah, it doesn't. I maybe can't slow down. Maybe. maybe you know, I but, can't fathom it. You know, but it's like it's like when you wake up in the morning, what do you want to do with your day? You know, that's what I, when people ask like about my job and if I like it, you know, and some people say, oh, I love to paint, you know, or I like to go on walks or I like to go hiking or I like to spend time in my garden. And I go, imagine waking up and doing that every day, except you get a paycheck at the end of the week. And that's like the light bulb that clicks for a lot of people, you know? And so, um, even though I do have passions outside of audio, I mean, this is, um, definitely what I enjoy doing every day. What are those passions outside of audio? Um, you talk I, about camping. I like, yeah. Well, I like, yeah, I love the outdoors. Mm -hmm. Um, I like science. I like reading. I like traveling. I like playing music, uh, a guitar player. A lot of times I just like hanging out. Um, what do you, so what are some of the things that you do to fuel your brain outside of work, outside of audio? Uh, I try to get outside is oh. my big thing. Like, um, especially in the summers when the weather's nice, I try to go to the mountains, um, in camp. I think that's like the big uh, re-energizer for me is getting out into nature and with very little people around and just remembering my place on this earth, you know, and just the solitude of it and just kind of back to pure existence. That's kind of the the refresher for me. And um, I have this kind of yin and yang in my life because early on I wanted to be like uh, going to forestry or, you know, I kind of thought about living a more solitary lifestyle. And here I am in audio living in a heavily urban environment. Being a recording engineer, you can't live in the middle of nowhere. So uh, I, f I find like I have to have this this yin and yang in my life. Like I do my city urban music thing, and then I have to retreat and spend time in isolation, you know, in the mountains. And I think that's uh, 
that's kind of my my thing I like to do when I'm not when I'm not working. Do you seek inspiration or information from other sources? Like, I mean, do you like are there other podcasts that you listen to, or are there? Um, yeah, I do listen to Pensado's Place sometimes uh, on an audio side, but uh, I love Star Talk. Uh, I'm a, I love space and astronomy and stuff like that. Uh, the Neil deGrasse Tyson podcast. Uh, that's probably like one of my favorite ones I listen to. Science Fridays. I, I love science, you know, nature, space, uh, astrophysics. You know, that's it was another passion of mine. Uh, astronomy, stuff like that. Um, that's probably... I mean, that kind of goes back to the solitary of nature and space and yeah. the kind of bigger picture of things, you know, and it's sometimes that's humbling. And then I'm sitting in recording studios and, you know, I just think about out of all the places and the world I could be, of all the professions I could be doing, how lucky am I to be sitting in a recording studio, recording music with musicians, you know, capturing their creative passion and someone's paying me to do it. I mean, it's it's really super humbling, and um, sometimes like just reflecting back on. We all know that, but it's some you know, and we always get down on. I mean, I sometimes get down on myself about you know either pay or should I be doing something else with my life, or um, you know, this client is you know giving me a hard time or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, when I sit there and I go, look, I'm sitting in a recording studio. I'm getting paid to be here. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. You know, there's very few people that kind of have that opportunity. There's a lot of people who want to do that. There's a lot of kids in school. I see a lot of interns, you know, every year, dozens and dozens and dozens of interns from all these studios. And they always ask, like, you know, your path to success or how you got to where you are. And, you know, it's... um. What do you think the path to success is? Success being... Arbitrarily? Yeah. For those, for those students that listen, that go, oh, I, I really want to be doing what those guys are doing. You know, I don't, I think it's probably different for everybody. You know, for me, it was just, I worked really hard, you know, when I was in school and I studied and I proved that I cared and I wanted to be in audio. And, uh, and, you know, and that kind of passion and caring led me to meet Howard, you know. And so for me, that was my path to success. You know, that was the start of my journey to becoming an engineer. But it's, you know, it's probably different for everyone. And it's tough because I see a lot of people who are probably good engineers or a lot of young guys who are just as passionate maybe as I was or maybe even more, you know, or maybe even obsessed with it more than I was, you know, that probably will just probably won't happen for them, you know. Well, this has been enlightening talking to you. It's, you know, I, I only know you so well. So this kind of gives me a, <laughs> a deeper glimpse into you as a person. And uh, it's great talking with you. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Tyler Crowder here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have him on. And uh, we are out of time, so let's say goodbye and thank you to Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, Cole Williams, and we want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, Lawton Audio, and Audio Technica. Great to be with you again, and I hope you'll join us next time. And as usual, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, 
and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 